Well, if you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to Psalm 63. Psalm 63 is where we'll be spending time this morning in our series, Prayers of the Psalms. Prayers of the Psalms. And this message, uh, in a lot of ways, has been kind of brewing inside of me. And if I was to, you know, name anything, uh, you know, I was telling the team this morning, if, if there was one thing I could ask God to do with us, collectively over this prayer week, if there was one thing, and there is one thing that I'll be praying over this week uh, for us collectively as a church Fano this week, it's that God would significantly increase our hunger, our spiritual hunger, that God would increase our spiritual hunger this week. That's the thing that I'll be, I'll be praying and I'd invite us to lean into and pay attention to uh, this morning. As you know, we've been looking at prayers of the Psalms, looking at the, the words of the Psalms, this, this kind of original prayer book for the people of God that has shaped the, the desires, the longings, the prayers of God's people forever. And, uh, and so we've kind of been listening to that and, and tuning ourselves to that, that it might shape the way that we pray, uh, not just as we come to prayer week, but for, like ongoing as well, that it would shape the way in which we pray. So let's read together Psalm 63. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, if not, it'll be on the screen, you can follow along. Psalm 63. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Hey, you know, historically, when the Word of God is written, usually it's a moment of great enthusiasm and excitement. So let's shake off a little bit of that Cantabrian spirit this morning and let it out a little bit. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Hey, that's more like it. Nice. Uh, hey, listen, I don't know about you, but um, I grew up, in, you know, I grew up, I came to faith at a young age and I grew up in the church and and, and that was all well and good. I'm really grateful for my family's upbringing and that they were people of faith and that I was raised in church and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I didn't really start taking faith seriously for myself until kind of the end of high school, late teenage years. And in particular, when, uh, I, you know, I was wrestling with a sense of call to ministry, I took a bit of a gap year and I went overseas. And that was my first time getting exposed, growing up in Australia, first time getting exposed like properly to a group of young people who were sold out, passionate, on fire for God. You know what I mean? And we, we were part of a team for three months as part of this team and it was, it was so 
um, compelling. It was so contagious being part of a team like that for three months that actually if you, if you look back, there were 31 of us on that team. And of the 31, I don't know the exact numbers, but I can tell you it's probably more than two-thirds have gone on to continue life in ministry in some way, shape or form, whether they're pastors or missionaries overseas or continuing to serve in, in ministry in different ways. Some names you might even recognize. Uh, but I'm not here to drop names. There was something contagious about the, the culture of a group like that and being around people like that that stirred something inside of me where faith came alive and, and God became more real and God's activity in and around the world became much more evident to me and, and, and realizing, just being awakened to the truth that God is far more involved in our world and in our lives than we often recognize and realize. And it fueled inside of me a passion and a hunger for the Lord. So I came back from that trip after time spent overseas I came back and my mates all thought I was crazy because I was doing things like I was fasting regularly and I was in the word constantly I was doing prayer walks and you know I'd spend New Year's Eve praying through the night like praying in the new year up on a mountainside and then going for a surf at sunrise you know just to keep it cool um, and grounded, you know. But, but what I've realized is, you know, that was when I was like 19 and 20 and 21 and, you know, I'm not that young anymore. And I've realized, even as a pastor, it's difficult to burn with passion and with hunger over the long haul. Anyone else notice this? That life actually has this strange ability to take the edge off your hunger, where you begin to get drowned out with the responsibilities and the duties and the problems. And, and one of the great challenges, Jesus says in the, in the parable of the good soil, that third kind of soil is the deceitfulness of wealth, the cares of this life, and the desires for other things crowd out or literally choke, strangle the seed out, and it cannot be fruitful. And so I kind of had this growing resolve in me as a teenager. And I've just, look, I've not always lived into this resolve, but I resolved as a teenager that I, I didn't want this work of God that I got to experience, that I got to taste and see to, to kind of get crowded out by the things of life. And yeah, it's gone in ebbs and flows and there's been better seasons and not so good seasons. But all the way through, I've had this desire to burn for Christ. A deep-seated passion, one that doesn't go out. And I think it's actually possible to live into. And so I've been captivated over the years, particularly by spiritual awakenings and revivals. You know, we've had some amazing renewals and spiritual revivals that I've come to learn about since moving to Christchurch over the last 11 years. And, and the move of God in this place and in this space, it's been incredible. There's been revivals that have broken out all over the place and, and, and many people have written books on these things and, and it's fascinating because so many people have a different understanding. Like the, the, everyone's trying to answer the same question when you look at spiritual awakenings and revivals, aren't they? They're all like, what's the secret source? What's the key? What's the thing that makes it go, right? Like, this is what everyone's kind of like, so they write books about it. And, and the funny thing is, like, there's plenty of answers floating out there. And depending on what kind of theological stream or background you come from, people will have different answers. Like, all the Reformed folks out there, the Calvinists and the Presbyterians and those, they think that they've got the answer, you know? And they've been powerfully used by God in the past, you know? And they say it's because of their high view of God, the sovereignty of God, you know? The, the, but, but, you know... I don't think that's it because there's this whole other stream of the church that's, uh, that's been powerfully moved by God as well, like our stream, you know, the Wesleyan Arminian. We have a very different understanding of salvation, a very different understanding of the work of grace to the Reformed and the Calvinists, 
but God's used us powerfully and mightily in different ways. Our Wesleyan stream, Arminian stream to kind of spiritual awakening and revivals. Then there's those who are part of high church traditions that are more liturgical and formal and they will say, well, God's used us powerfully in the past because of our reverence for God and honoring of that, right? And then you get like the Jesus movement. You ever heard about the Jesus movement? Basically a bunch of charismatic hippies, you know, where there's nothing high church about them, you know, but, but hey, the power of God was on tap. You know what I mean? And I think, and so it's funny because everyone thinks it's their distinctive. Everyone thinks that God's used all these different people and all these different distinctives. So, but the truth is, because there's so, so variety, there's got to be some kind of underlying principle underneath it all. And uh, one, of, one of the pastors that I, that I listen to regularly and, and I've gotten to know a little bit is a guy named John Tyson. He leads an amazing church in New York City. And in 2018, he took his family on this amazing holiday. Now, they didn't go to Disneyland like a lot of other families did, but they went actually on a revival tour. And they went around and they visited these historic sites of revival breaking out all over the world. And they went to just try and understand God, what was it? How did you do it? Why was this about it? And he says, and he came back and he's like, guys, I figured it out. I've learned the lesson. He says, you know what the key is? You know what the key to spiritual revival and awakening? The key to revival is hunger. Hunger. The reason God uses Reformed people and Wesleyans and Anglicans and Anabaptists and charismatic hippies is is if they're hungry, right? And, and, and Tyson summarizes it this way, the key principle behind why revival happens, he puts in one phrase. He says, God comes where he's wanted. Whew, I don't know about you, but that's challenging to me. God comes where he's wanted. And I was reading this week about the revival that broke out in the, in the, in the Hebrides in 1949 through 1952, this three-year window. Anyone even know where the Hebrides are? Yes, this li- there you go, someone knows. This tiny little cluster of islands off the coast of Scotland, middle of nowhere. Like, like literally, I had to Google, you know, I'm Google Maps and I'm zooming in and zooming in and zooming in, you know, like trying to find where the Hebrides even are, you know, and, and it's like, why, why the Hebrides? God, why revival there? You know, why not, why not Edinburgh? Why not Glasgow? There's some amazing cities in Scotland, you know, but, but here's why. Because they wanted him in the Hebrides, right? God's not interested in strategy like we are oftentimes, you know. God doesn't think the way we think. God comes where he's wanted. And if you would just allow this to properly hit your life and sink into the soil of your soul, I'm convinced it would transform us it would transform you it would transform your family it would transform our church and it would alter the trajectory of your life because we know god will bypass 99 lukewarm hearts and anoint the one that's hungry for him god will bypass a hundred lukewarm families that are choked out by the busyness of life and anoint one kingdom family god will bypass a hundred sleepy churches and put his hand on the one church that wants his presence and is burning for it that friends if you can grab hold of that that will change your life god comes where he's wanted amen that could be the talk, right? We could just go home now, right? I mean, that, that, could, be, that could be it. It's revelatory, but, but here's the problem. 
what if you don't really want him? What if, what if I'm struggling with my faith or I'm tempted by sin or I'm struggling with doubt or I'm going through a hard time, I'm in this dry spot and yeah, God comes where he's wanted, but to be honest, I don't even know if I want him, you know? Like, wh- or what about this one? I, I, I wanted God once and I was hungry for him, but he never showed up and so now I'm mad at him. So it's not enough to give the revelation that revival, to revival that God comes where He's wanted. That's not enough. Here's the key question. How do we come to want God, to want Him more? And that's what I want to talk about today, about how we cultivate spiritual hunger and desire. Because, and, and the person who's going to teach us about this is King David in Psalm 63, this, this beautiful psalm. And, you know, David's going to teach us about longings and about passion and life that cries out and hungers for God. It's a beautiful psalm. I mean, they're all beautiful, but this might be the most beautiful, right? I mean, you know, this, this might be, it's, it's certainly worth memorizing. This prayer week, if you were going to memorize a psalm, go with this one. Here's how it starts. Psalm 63, verse 1. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Now, when we read this, you know, it'd be easy for us to imagine, you know, King David lounging in his palace, someone's fanning him, you know, and he's like, you know, this is good, yeah. You know, he gets, you can, you can imagine him kind of slipping into a bit, of a bit of a creative zone, a bit of a zen space maybe, you know, a bit of a creative zone. He's like, oh, quick, bring me a flat white because I've got something stirring inside of me. I've got to get this out. We need some vellum and a parchment. Get me a pen. We've got to write this down. I think I've got a bit of Psalm 63 coming on me. Let's get this out, right? But do you notice where this is happening? In the, in, the, in, the, in the prefatory notes above the, the verse 1 where it tells us where this is happening at the start of it, it tells us on the slide, when he was in the desert of Judah. He's not lounging, relaxed, comfortable in his palace. He's in the desert of Judah. And most scholars agree that David is there because he has a problem. David's son, Absalom, has rebelled against him and is seeking to steal his kingdom, his power, and his legacy. And so David has been driven away and is being hunted down. So literally, his life is in danger. He's lost everything that matters to him and he's hiding out in the desert. David is not in some artistic, creative place of privilege. No, he's hiding out in the desert, crying out to God from that dry and difficult place. And you might be thinking, well, why does that matter to us? Why is that helpful, you know? You, you might be thinking, you know, because here's why. Let me, because you might, you might have a tendency to think, you know, I would be really passionate for God if my life got better. Right? Here's the truth. You probably wouldn't. You probably wouldn't. You'd probably be less passionate. You might be more grateful. You might, you might enjoy your life, but you would actually be less passionate. Here's why. Because the gap is the gift. The gap is the gift. The distance between what you want and where you are is the thing that fuels and grows your hunger. That's, the, that's what gives you hunger. The gap is the gift. Now, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, I've lived some time on this rotating planet and I've experienced some amazing moments of incredible joy and freedom and blessing and fulfillment and pleasure and just amazing things. And I've also experienced some seasons of such heartbreaking pain. Things that are so difficult, I can't even share them with people. 
And I gotta tell you, it's the painful ones that have been more formative. How about you? It's the pain that's formed me more deeply. And you know what this is like, right? You, when you have a great day, all you do is you enjoy it, right? And you go to bed and you're like, oh man, thanks for that one, God, that was strong. And it's like high five and like, you know? Man, you, you're not going to bed crying out, like, come on, God, you gotta move, you gotta show up, you gotta do something here. I'm in a dry land where there's no water. Would you just show up, right? You're not crying out like that, no. You're just like, cheers for that one, God. <laughs> right, like... I mean, and so one of the things I think that we need to get out of our minds is this lie that if my situation got better, my hunger would increase. In fact, God will, at times, put you in harder situations in order to stir your hunger up. You ever thought about that? Anybody who's loving will put you in the conditions to activate your love, not dull your love. At times, it can feel like maybe God's playing hard to get. (laughs) Like He's withdrawing His presence from you. But it's because He's positioning you to wake you up. And all the while, we can be caught up complaining about the very thing that is the gift for our hunger. So we have to reframe our perspective. We have to rethink these things, right? When you go back to the passages of passion all throughout the Scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, the majority of them are framed through hardship. Now, I'm not saying you have to become some masochist who goes out seeking this or anything like that, but, but I am saying that you should stop trying to get out of a situation and fix everything and instead get your eyes on God and cry out to Him from that place. So that's one of the places that hunger is born from, right? It's born from frustration. It's born from dissatisfaction. It's born from anger. And a lot of times, I think Christians, we get get a little too nice and like, well, you know, you know. No, I don't know. Tell me more. Tell me more. Let that out, whatever that is. Because often as Christians, I think we're just so repressed because we're so concerned about managing our image. And sometimes you just need to let it out. It says, Jesus was heard for his loud cries and tears. And that hunger of Jesus brought about salvation. See, the gap is the gift. So I want you to see, some of, some of you whose number one prayer is, God, would you just fix my situation? That maybe your number one prayer should, pray, should be prayed like, God, would you keep waking up my heart? Thank you for this gift of discomfort. The gap is the gift. The second thing I think that, that, that helps us fuel and grow a hunger for God is to understand, examine, and seek fulfillment of your longings. Cultivating hunger for God and aching for His presence is a gift from God, and He does not mean to disappoint you. He doesn't. So often as Christians, we think we're worldview people, we're truth people, Bible people, right? Well, we've got this figured out, and we kind of think we've, we've got it fo- figured out like a formula, like two plus two equals four, like... I am the way, the truth, and the life. Great. No one comes to the Father but by me. Great. Friends, it's not formulaic. It's fundamentally relational. And so if we're not careful, what we'll do is we'll either repress our desires, stuff them down and shove them away, or we'll seek fulfillment of them outside of our faith because we'll think and feel that they don't have an expression within God's kingdom. Not for David. Look what he says in verse 3. He says, because your love is better than life. Better than life. 
because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I'll praise you as long as I live. And in, in your name, I'll lift up my hands. Friends, we are all creatures of desire. We all have things that we long for. They might be success and achievement and ambition. They might be that family or that house or that job or whatever it might be. The problem is with trying to get your passions and desires met in the wrong places is that it just sets you up for repeated disappointment. We are people of such passion. If we could really let it out, get freed up, get in touch with our hearts, we'd realize that we do long for so much, that there's so much we want out of life and, and don't even know if we have the permission or even are allowed to want it, right? We're, but we are creatures of desires. That's how God made us. But if we take that longing and we attach it to the wrong things, like Hannah talked about last week, it's just going to break our hearts. The world is not designed to fulfill the kind of hunger that you have, friends. It can do it in the short term, but it won't last. Jeremiah 2 says, says it like this. It says, Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. I mean, what an image. Picture that. If you, if, when you rely on a well, you dig it out and you want to be able to come in and use it at a time of great need, right? And here's what God says. He says, I'm a spring. You don't have to dig it out. It's overflowing. But instead, you've consciously said, I'm going to reject you, spring of living water, and I'm going to dig myself my well, right? And so maybe it's a godless relationship where there's enough love in it at first that it feels like a good exchange. But there's going to come that day when you go and that, find that well has leaked and it's just not there anymore. Or you get that job and, and think this is going to fix everything. And, and, and it, might, it, it likely will fix some things, but it won't fix everything. Or you make that team or you get that part and all your friends are like, man, congrats, you made it, you've done it. And, and they give you flowers to celebrate and you find yourself thinking, man, these smell nice, but it doesn't smell as good as I thought, right? That kind of disappointment will take you down because the degree to which you long will be the dissatisfaction you experience when it's not fulfilled. And that's why so many people are miserable in this life. Friends, don't route your desires through the wrong things. You know, people often mock Christians for their faith. You and your covenant love for God. <laughs> They'll laugh at it, right? But I'll tell you what, it works when you need it. It works when you need it. You remember a few years back when we had that horrible shooting at the mosque here in Christchurch? You remember that? And there was this outpouring of love and support to our Muslim community around the city. You remember, you remember this? Everyone was looking for, what can we do? What can we do? What can we do? And they did what they could, but they quickly ran out of things to do. You remember this? And I remember going to a prayer gathering, not the nationwide one that the Prime Minister held, you know, not that one. I remember going to a prayer gathering hosted by church leaders around the city. Going to a prayer gathering in, um, which one is it? Latimer Square, is that? Yeah, Latimer Square. In, in Latimer Square, and there with, you know, like a bunch of other church leaders and a bunch of other people, and a bunch of people who have no faith background at all. And I remember talking to one guy just in passing who, who was bold enough to confess, man, I feel somewhat jealous for people of faith. 
because I realize in a moment like this, like, what have I got to turn to? Man, that's a bold confession, right? Like, that's a deep confession to to recognize this well, this cistern of secularism and self-help isn't working when I need it most. David found this man of passion. He found full satisfaction in his relationship with God. I mean, that that verse 3, it's startling, right? He says, because your love is better than life. And I, I, look, come on, let's be honest. Let's be real for a second. I don't think people who are walking past our church right now are having a conversation or wondering this, like, what are all those people doing in there? What are those Christians up to, you know? Oh, they're just enjoying a love that's better than life. Oh, okay. I was just wondering. I don't think that's what they're thinking as they walk past here on their way to the cafe, are they? Right? I suspect they're thinking something more like, oh no, they're just weak people using religion as a crutch for the brokenness of the world. Or, or maybe it's cultish behavior where people have a meaning void they're trying to meet in some new interpretation of the Bible or something like that, right? But David's not doing new interpretations. He's not doing meaning voids. You know, David's drinking in the satisfying love of God. He says, because your love is better than life. I mean, let's just sit with that for a second. Because your love is better than life? Friends, do you believe that? Really? What sort of love is this? It says, in, it says because your love is better than life. This is hesed love, is the, is the word in, in, in Hebrew. How many of you think about hesed all the time? Yeah, this is a common thing, right? Yeah, <laughs> hesed love. Uh, You've got to get a little uh, throaty on the, on the pronunciation. It's, it's a hard word to translate. It basically, there's, because there's no direct equivalent for it in English. So sometimes translators use l- words like faithfulness and goodness and loyalty and kindness. And then when that doesn't quite do it and they realize that's still falling short, they start d- mashing English words together to try and make it, make it more, more meaningful. So steadfast love or faithful love or loyal love. But I think the best translation for this word, chesed, is this, loving kindness. David says, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will glorify you. In other words, David's saying he's found something better than everything else he's tried. Think about that for a moment. He's a king, right? David was a king. He had a lot of wives. He had a lot of sex, according to the Bible, right? And here's what David's saying, your loving kindness is better than that. He had a lot of power. He had a kingdom and armies at his control. Imagine that kind of power, right? Like, hey, bring the new wine. Oh, I don't like this one today. Let's try the other one today. You know, like, I mean, imagine that kind of power, flat white, loving kindness, better than that. He had recognition. He rose up and essentially went viral when he was young. They used to chant, Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands, right? This created jealousy by his quick rise in influence. And yet he writes, your loving kindness is better than that. I mean, this is just an amazing encounter that he's had with the love of God. And that's because hesed love is different from human love those of you who are married you remember can you remember back to that engagement period when you're engaged and all you could think about was just wanting to get married i remember i remember what it's like jamie and i've been married just over 20 years now and and uh and i remember that moment it got so bad the longing and the aching to be married got so bad for me that i couldn't i, I got to a point where all my other 
friends were getting married and I was going to these weddings and I got to a point where I was like, I just can't handle going to a single other wedding. You know, like it was just heartbreaking. I could not do it. But you, you get, you know, the, that early stage of a relationship where, you, you know, you get together and your partner is like the best thing ever, right? You could do no wrong. And all those little things that 20 years later start to annoy you or have annoyed you for the last 10 years, right? Uh, you're blind to in those early stages and you think they're just so cute and adorable and I just love the way that they do that. It's, they're just so different from me. That's why I love about them, you know? All that kind of stuff. Right? And here's what happens. The more you get to know someone, even in the best marriages, even in the healthiest and strongest marriages, you realize, wow, I guess I married a sinner. Just like I married a person, you know, like with their own needs and their own wounds and they got their own dysfunction and their own families jacked them up a little bit and I've jacked them up a little bit and life's jacked them up a little bit, right? You got all this stuff going on. We're just trying to keep this thing real and honest, but boy, it can be hard. It can be so disillusioning because the closest thing to divine love is human love. And yet we, as a society, we invest so much in human love. In fact, I think we're so terrified of being disappointed with love that we've settled for promiscuity. We've stripped the pleasure away from it because we're terrified of truly giving ourselves to someone and then realizing that they don't have what it takes to meet all our needs. And I think this is why so many people end up in divorce because they think that it would have fixed everything, but it didn't and it won't. It never was intended to, but here's the promise of Scripture. The promise of Scripture is that Chesed love is different than human love. The more you know God, the better He gets. The more you know God, the better He gets. When you lean into His unfailing love, He doesn't disappoint. He gets better. And the more you understand His patience and His mercy and His power and His love and His kindness and His patience, and the better He gets, the deeper you go with God, the more wonderful He becomes. And that's why David says, my situations don't dictate the state of my heart. My sons rebelled against me. I might have lost the kingdom. I don't know, but Lord, your loving kindness is better than life. Therefore, not situationally, but because of your love in my heart, my lips will praise you. So the key for stirring up passion and cultivating a hunger for God is not do more for God and whip it up and repent and be a repenter. No, as as much as we, we all need repentance, it's not the key. The key is learning to delight in the satisfying love of God. We have to become delighters, right? And I just don't think there's a lot of people doing this. I mean, you look at verse five, he says, I'll be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. Fully satisfied. I just don't think we're doing this, right? You get the, you get the, the call, hey, 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 mate, you want to come over tonight? Oh, sorry, can't tonight, I'm busy. Oh, yeah? What are you doing? I'm delighting in God's satisfying love as with the richest of foods. I'm busy. I just don't think we're doing that with our time, are we? I don't think we've even necessarily been trained to or don't think we're even allowed to. You know, a lot of people think it's got to be this wild, intense thing and actually it's just got to be beautiful. One of the giants of of faith from the past couple of hundred years, a guy named George Mueller, ran an orphanage completely by faith, trusting God to provide the needs that they had. Incredible care for the poor. And he said, the Christian's chief duty is to make yourself happy in God every morning. Hang on, hang on, hang on. You're running an orphanage by faith. How do you do it, man? Well, every morning, 
I just get happy in God. That, wait, wait, that can't be it. No, that's it. That's it. That means you've got to get your soul in such a state of recognizing the reality you're in. You've got to get heart happy in God. David says, I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you because you are my help. I will sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. And sadly, I just think we don't know this. We don't believe this. We don't live this because in so many ways we've tamed the Son of God. We have. We've tamed the Son of God and we've We've, we've contained the Holy Spirit, right? We, Jesus was a man full of passion himself, right? He's the one who made a whip of, and, and went into the temple and drove people out because they were misusing the place. They turned over tables and, and in anger, he says, drove, he's a man full of passions, right? And oftentimes we all like to think about the Holy Spirit and we go, oh, the Holy Spirit is a dove. No, the Holy Spirit's not a dove. That's an analogy, right? The Holy Spirit's a fire, and wind, when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, what happens? The wind blows, the house shakes, and people have, have tongues of fire on their heads. You imagine, you imagine what the disciples leaving that space? You know, we tame it down to this little dove that we can control and release and bring in and out for a magic trick and, you know, like, no. The Holy Spirit's a fire, right? There's this famous, uh, amazing story. You know the Desert Fathers. The Desert Fathers are, uh, and, and mothers are those who kind of left when, when, when Christianity and, and, and culture and, and Rome basically got so wedded together, the Desert Fathers said, no, we're not going to be complicit to this anymore. And so they fled and escaped out to the desert to be freed from the you know, culture, cultural trappings essentially in order to pursue God more fully to fuel their hunger they, they embrace the hardship and the discomfort in order to fuel their hunger for God and these desert fathers and mothers ha we have this rich treasure trove of, of things sayings and writings so there's this book called the sayings of the desert fathers which tells a story of one desert father Abelot who comes to see another desert father named Abba Joseph and Abelot went to see Abba Joseph and he said Abba as far as I can as I can I say my little office I fast a little, I pray and meditate. I live in peace as far as I can. I purify my thoughts. What else can I do? You know, this would be the equivalent of like someone coming and meeting with the pastor and saying, hey pastor, you know, like I'm doing pretty well, you know, I'm reading, I'm doing the Bible reading plan and I'm showing up at church like twice a month and I'm not looking at porn and I'm not doing these things. What, what else, what else has the church got for me, you know? Doing pretty good, you know? And then the old man, Abba, Abba Joseph, stood up and stretched his hands toward heaven. He said his fingers became like ten lamps of fire. And he said to him, if you will, you can become all flame. See, we've reduced what it means to follow Jesus to a standard of such minimal spirituality that we need to change the questions and we need to get a vision of what could be. Remember, you can become all flame. Your desires are not too much for God. They're probably not enough. That's why that famous C.S. Lewis quote that I know I've used a couple of times before where he says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. 
you know, we often think that if we just get enough willpower, we'll get there. But then there's all this field of study right now around the psychology of desire that's showing willpower doesn't bring lasting change. It's want power. It's that desire thing that actually brings lasting change. It's not, I will, I will, I will. It's, I want, I want, I want. That's what takes us forward. And so much of what Jesus is wanting to teach his people is about the cultivation of desire. That's why Jesus, in the middle of a festival in John 7, on the last and greatest day, says, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice. You know, when Jesus raises his voice, it's probably a good idea to pay attention. He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Friends, again, I just don't think that's what Cantabrians, like what, what we Kiwis are think about, think Jesus is offering. I just don't think that's what, what Kiwis think Jesus is offering, right? This well of living water for, for the thirsty that flows out of the center of your life. But that is exactly what he's offering us. And so our response to him of worship and of devotion and of discipleship, it's just a response of love. In fact, the Greek word for worship has this wide range of meanings, you know, all these different things, you know, but one of, them, one of the meanings is literally to kiss, to kiss. I don't think we view worship that way, like, hey, come on, bring it in, God, I got one for you. That expression of love, like, I just love you. I don't think we view worship that way. We think of it more as a kind of stoic, static thing that we show up and we do for an hour on a Sunday, not some passion-filled expression of love. And I just think, man, we've got to normalize passion. We've got to let that passion out. We've got to delight in that chesed, loving kindness that he offers us. So how do we do this? Let's get practical as we, as we kind of um, close. How do we do this? Remember, God comes where he's wanted. So how do you learn to want him? Let's get practical. First is, we need to get near the flame. We need to get near the flame. If your heart is cold, you've got to get around passionate people. So much of what we do is borrowed from the people we're around. If you're cynical, people around you will become cynical. Culture is contagious, remember? Do you know anything about, you know, these mirror neurons and mimetic desire? I mean, there's this whole study of sociology going on at the moment of how we basically pick up what's being put off around us and, and we attune ourselves. It's kind of staggering. So if you want to be attuned to holy passion, put yourself around passionate people. Put yourself in those environments. It's why they encourage you to join a gym, right? Especially this time of year. You know, the New Year's resolutions, all that stuff. Sign up and join a gym. And yeah, you might like kind of fall off in showing up. But when you do show up, think about that moment. When you do show up and you go into the gym, it's really hard to kind of like get all the gear on and just walk around. Even if you're a talker and a chatty Cathy, like it's really hard to just wander around and chat with people when you're in the gym. No, you're at least going to get on the treadmill. You're at least going to do something. You know what I mean? Because you're in an environment and you're attuned to and it leads you to do something. The same is true, right? This is the reason why we want you to sign up and be in the prayer room, to be with others, to gather at 7 p.m. each week, each night this week, to gather in prayer with others. This is why we want you to be in worship so that you cultivate a hunger for God, so you pick up and attune to what God does among us. We're not getting some like spiritual, like heavenly brownie points because you all show up here. No, we put this on so that you can burn so that you can catch fire. Our aim is to create an atmosphere such that when you get in this atmosphere, maybe some of the sparks around will jump off the fire and they'll hit your heart and you'll become all flame. That's why we do what we do. And you might think that this is easy for me as a pastor, just walking around with this ongoing hunger and passion for God. No, it's not the case. 
I'll tell you now, I booked in a session in the prayer room late tonight. And I know I'm going to be exhausted. Today's a big day. I know I'm going to be wishing I was asleep. You know, I will have preached two times. I will have shown up and led Connection Point. I would have had lots of conversations and all these people. But you know what? I'm going to show up. And do you know why? You know why I'm going to show up? Because you just never know what's going to happen. You just never know what's going to happen. So just show up. Get in the room. You never know what's going to happen. Imagine being one of those disciples in the upper room when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. I mean, imagine that. People would be like, how was it? Huh? Sorry, I can't hear you. My head's still warm, right? Don't miss out. You've got to just get near those who are on fire. Get near the flame. Second would be befriend the saints. Do you read biographies? I love reading biographies. And lots of people are reading biographies these days, all kinds of biographies. You know, many today are reading business leaders and they're studying the lives of those leaders and billionaires and influencers and disruptors. And everyone's reading stuff on how to get an edge. But sadly, not many people are reading the saints. Christian biographies. Let me tell you, the saints lived radical lives. We tend to think that we are the ones who have said the greatest yes anyone has ever said to God. But you know what? The minute you get around people who have said a deeper yes that has cost them more and they're burning with a deeper fire, that doesn't beat you down with guilt and shame. It stirs you up. And you're like, man, I didn't even know you could know God like that. And you begin to lean in and, and, and what advice do they have? And you read what they teach and it impacts your heart. I mean, this is what happens when we read the saints and, and we go for it. I mean, the saints are this amazing amazing gift to the body of Christ. Do you read Christian biographies? I encourage you to. And the last thing I'd question would be, are you after the slow burn or the starter log? You know, I love a good fireplace. Confession, we have a brazier that I use more as a fire pit than a brazier in our backyard. There's something about it. I love a good fire, right? Love a good fire. And, 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 and you know, there's something about it. But a good fire is hard to build. You know, on a cold winter's night, sitting outside, you need a good fire to keep warm, right? Like, have you seen those quick light logs that are, you know, wrapped in the wrapper and you just light the wrapper and it's like, they just go, right? They just take off and they're cool, you know, but they just don't last, right? To build a good fire that lasts, it requires a lot more than that. To build a good fire that, like, warms the whole house, to build the kind of fire with a big bed of coals, to the kind of fire that's aesthetically pleasing because you chop the wood all to the perfect size and you've stacked it just right so it's stunning some people do this i don't know i do this um and you get it all perfect and beautiful right and, and you sit back and you enjoy that and you're like oh bring me the flat wide i think i've got a psalm 60 something coming in my spirit i mean you know i mean here's the point it just takes a long time to build a proper fire a lot of th people think you can get it with just a quick start, quick fix, this one thing, it's going to fix me, but it's not. A deep love takes time. Think about it, all great literature is born out of pain and time. Good luck trying to write some classic bestseller novel overnight. It just doesn't work that way, right? It takes time. You've got to feel it, tend to it, carry those seeds. You've got to build it. And you, and, and you need the spark, but then you need those twigs and kindling and then the logs. And it just takes time to build a good fire. It's the same with our faith. We can't just go around being like, you know, I got baptized real quick and then I denied my faith. No, no, no. We want to be those kind of people who 
know the Hesed love of God so that 15 years, 20 years later on, I'm walking with Jesus more passionate now than I ever have. May that be the kind of people that we're becoming. And here's why that's important, because it's going to take all of us. It will. You don't know that your exact story isn't the exact thing that someone else needs in order to catch on fire. And you don't know that your little testimony that you think doesn't matter or isn't meaningful isn't the very log that goes into somebody else's heart next to them and builds them up and sustains them. I, guys, you, I'm consistently amazed at how w- some of you will share a, a verse or an idea or something that God's done in your life, in your own heart, and, and I'll be like, man, you have no idea how much I needed that. That's blessed me. That's stirring me up, right? And that's because we need each other. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10 says, don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but urge or spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Again, it's not gold stars and heavenly brownie points for church attendance. No, it's not a culture of legalism. It's a culture of hunger. Culture of hunger. So we want to be around one another to be that with and for each other, to create that kind of atmosphere and stir it up. And it starts with an honest examination of our hearts. And then bringing that into the light and love of God's grace. And so that's how we're going to close, by bringing our hearts wherever they are, by bringing those to God as we come to the Lord's table and receive communion. You know, it's been said, God can't transform the person you're pretending to be. So if you're sucking wind right now, bring your heart and say, God, I'm sucking wind. If you're angry at God, and the reason that you've got no passion is because, God, I'm angry with you, then just bring that to God. God can handle it. So wherever we are, we need to bring it to God, this gift of wherever we are. Let's bring it to God and just say, here's where I am, but it's not where I want to be. So Lord, will you take me on a journey? Because I want you. I want you here. So if you'd be willing, let's just take a moment. And just try to bring your full self to the Lord. Let's bring our doubts and our fears, our concerns, any insecurities. Maybe on a scale of 1 to 10, if you feel like you're at a 0 or a 1 and just offer to God what you can, even if it feels like some dead and shriveled offering of a heart, offer it to God anyway. Maybe you're coming in on fire and Praise God for that. You know, offer that to Him. You know, in Revelation 2, Jesus says He doesn't want a busy church, a doctrinally pure church, a church that's going, got more going on. He says, you've forgotten one thing. I've got this against you. You've less, left your first love. And so, Father, we do. We come before You right now with total honesty. We bring our true hearts before you. Maybe you've got sin in your life and it's not pleasing to God and you know it's robbing you of passion. Why don't you just say to the Lord, God, would you please forgive me? Help me to get free from this. Maybe maybe you've got some hurt or church hurt even. Someone hurt you and you're scared to put your heart out again. And something in you both wants it but is also afraid and Oh, I just don't know. Just bring that to the Lord.
And so, Holy Spirit, we welcome you to come and meet with us now. We invite you to come. Fill us with your love. As we come and receive from these elements that you have blessed, that you have given to us, would they grow a spiritual hunger inside of us? Would you do that work that you promise in the scriptures to spread abroad the love of God in our hearts? We know that's your work, Holy Spirit. So we just wait on you right now. We bring our hearts before you and we pray that you would fill them with your love. We know we can't manufacture or manipulate that. We can only receive it. So right now, Lord, we just receive your love.